Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist. How are you this Labor Day Sunday, Miss Laura? <laughs> I'm good because I'm laboring, let me tell you. Not in labor that way, but in the working sense. It has not been a weekend off for me. How about you? I've been lumpy I've been because I have lots of reports and things to do, and so I've just been too tired. I'm going to have them all to do tomorrow, which I'll regret tomorrow. Procrastination. Yes, I've been doing it pretty well. Laura came home, so that was a good excuse not to be productive. But she's gone now, yeah. and I haven't changed my ways any. So there you go. Well, it's too late in the day to start all that now, although you are kind of a night owl, so. Well, I used to be. My older age, I'm not quite the night owl I used to be, but yeah, we'll see. I might get a little something. You've got a tonight. day. You've got 36 yeah. hours before those reports are due. <laughs> I can write a book almost in that time. Yeah. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> They'll get done. I know that. I know. All right. Tonight is show number 127, and it's a really interesting topic. It's differentiating toddlers with developmental language delays versus those who are on the autism spectrum. But before we get to that, I want to do my little announcements section that I typically do at the beginning of a show. If you are in Charleston, West Virginia, or near there on September 15th, I would love for you to join me at my conference there, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor. And you can find out registration information by checking out my website at teachmetotalk.com and either scrolling down until you find that post or clicking on the category Conferences. And you should be able to get all the registration information taken care of there. And the early deadline discount is about to expire. So get registered for that. And then my other dates this fall will be um, October 19th in Dallas, Texas, and October 21st in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I am very, very excited about all of those dates. We may try to do one more in November, but that's not official yet, so we'll just see. We don't know where that's going to be yet. Um, Second announcement, and Kate, I have not got to talk to you about this. Have you looked at teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page in the last day or two? I have not. Or three, maybe. Well... We have a person named Jennifer who loves the website and the podcast particularly, and she's a therapist who's new to early intervention, so she wrote a nice little blurb about how much she's learned from there. And listen to what she's done. She's listened to our shows from the summer all about play. Remember earlier in the summer when we when we talked about our, our favorite toys or our favorite newer finds that we had not talked about in several months, you know, these were ones that were not listed originally on the website in that recommended toys and things. And then she listened to the stages of play toys and the things that we recommended. And then she went to Amazon.com and made a wish list of every one of those toys that we have mentioned (laughs) since, oh, May probably. And it's all compiled there. And if you click on the link that she posted, all of those toys with their descriptions (laughs) and ways to buy those pop up. So I thought, what an incredible resource for her to have shared on there, you know, unannounced to me. She just did this, you know, this is how she contacted me is through the Facebook page. There was no email to tell me about that preliminary thing because I think I would have said, uh, Jennifer, are you sure you want to spend all that time doing that? Because 
I'm talking about it, but don't want to do that. But she put that together, and now she's buying from that list because she's about to go back to work. She's been home raising her own babies and wanted some new ideas and some new toys. So I thought that was pretty darn cool that that wish list is all there with all those things that we've talked about, things that have become our new favorites, like that That's Fisher really Price. Cool. Maybe she's like us and likes to get pre- these kind, you know, toys for presents, and like she, her boyfriend or husband and her parents, and then she can say, go to Amazon.com and you can see my list. Yeah, let me just email you that link to my list right here. <laughs> yeah. But I thought it was pretty darn convenient, and boy, doesn't it take a lot of the time, the legwork, out of figuring all of that out. And again, it's compiled in a nice list, and it's so funny, as I was marveling going through there, I would think, I wonder if this toy is on there, and I would you know, keep scrolling down, and the, that toy would be on there. And then the next toy I would think about, that would be on there too. So I was really, really pleasantly shocked that someone would do that. So that's on there, and I thought that was pretty cool. So thank you, Jennifer. I've invited her to be on the show, but you can read her comment back to me that I'm not sure she's going to be calling us anytime soon. (laughs) You don't think? I don't think, but you can see, because I know how much you love callers, and you're always saying, we need callers, we need callers. So I invited her to be on the show, and I think she has pretty much passed on that. But that was nice, and you can look at that. And, again, if anyone's listening and you want a review of the cool toys that we've talked about over the last several months, Jennifer is on it, and it is on her Amazon list, so just click on that. Hey, Laura, let me give the call-in number in case there's a live listener listening who's thinking, I'd call in if I knew how to do it. It's very easy. You just dial or one seven one eight seven six six four three three two, and then Laura will see that there's a caller, and she'll pick up. And we don't care if you're a parent or a therapist or just an interested listener. For some reason, this topic is near and dear to your heart as well. Please call. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely, and we're going to have to tell Johnny to pay close attention to the switchboard since you've just given out that number. I think um, my favorite laptop is no longer connecting to my Wi-Fi, and so I am laptopless as I do the show today and just have some paper notes in front of me. And he's actually manning the switchboard since he has other things that he's doing as well. You know, we never just do one thing at our house. Um, So I'm going to have to tell him. I hope he has the window pulled up so if someone does call, he can let us know. Okay. Okay, the third thing that I wanted to mention that uh, I put on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page this week is, um, Kate, do you remember the bilingual speech pathologist from Chicago who called the show, and she had recommended my website on the Signing Times website. Her name is Gloria, and then she came to my Maryville, Indiana conference, and so it was so exciting for me to meet somebody in person. Well, I helped her brainstorm a little bit after the conference. And, you know, she asked me a bunch of questions about how did you get your website going and how did you get all your products produced. And she had some really cool ideas for doing some Spanish-speaking resources, especially for speech pathologists who really don't speak Spanish or who have a limited proficiency with Spanish. And goodness knows we all have had those um, kids on our caseload where moms and dads, well, nearly every speech pathologist at some time in her career has routinely has a Spanish-speaking family referred to her. And a lot of times people are like, I did 
in the beginning of my career where I really struggled through that and just did the best I could, you know, and now I say, please move on to somebody who can help you better than me because that is not my forte. But Gloria had these great ideas, and she tried to work with lots of different people to get those produced and found lots and lots of roadblocks and just issues she could never get past. And so I was really saying to her, Gloria, you just have to figure out a way to do it on your own. Nobody cares about your own ideas as much as you do. And, you know, she was saying, well, how can I get like a Johnny that will pretty much do it for me? Because, you know, that's how all of my ideas come to fruition because he makes those come true. And she was saying, well, I don't know about that. You know, we kind of joked about that. But she has ended up now being able to self-produce a lot of the things and her ideas that she's worked on. She's got a cute um, website. It's Manitas in Motion. And I looked up Manitas, and I hope I'm saying that correctly, even though I had Two years of Spanish in college, I remember taco and burrito, and that's about it, and how to catch tips. And it means girlfriend or little sister, so I thought that was cute. And But she uses lots of music and lots of sign language to bridge the gap with Spanish and English and help kids link meanings to, you know, early developing language in in both English and Spanish. So cute. I'm so excited her resources are finally again coming to real life. And so she's got a cute little uh, Facebook page about it and website. So I wanted to give her a big shout out and tell her I'm so proud that she got that going for herself. And so you can check out that link. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. I always admire that entrepreneurs like that. So that's there and I wanted to be sure and she's been so supportive she sends so many people to the website and the podcast and other people have contacted me and said you know I've heard about you and she's always saying that she's she's so complimentary every time she emails me or we have a discussion so I wanted to be sure to give her a plug so there you go Gloria all right anything do you have any announcements Kate no, I really don't. Just that I'm a little okay. tentative about tonight's topic, so why? I was just gonna gab about it something. like we always do. I know. It's just a subject that I struggle with in real life with kids a lot because so many kids that we work with, um, either we are wondering are they on the spectrum or they ultimately go on and get a diagnosis of being on the spectrum and I think that in and of itself is kind of can be difficult because there's some discrepancy between who gets the diagnosis and who doesn't based on who's doing the evaluation and I don't know right. it's just something I struggle with in real life on a fairly regular basis and this this uh article really does help to clarify some of the things that I've wondered well you know I think it does. You know, and let's start off by talking about for a child to get a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder from whatever professional or whatever multidisciplinary team they've gone to, there's a set of criteria, and I don't have the DSM-IV criteria right in front of me. I meant to print that off, but I didn't. I got so wrapped up in other things right before the show. But there's a really specific set of you have to have so many characteristics out of this list and so many characteristics out of that list. And, you know, it's pretty specific criteria if the professional is using 
that um, DSM-4 criteria. There are some other tools that psychologists, and again, let me just say that ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association, believes that speech-language pathologists are, uh, it is within your scope of practice to diagnose or help in the official diagnosis of autism. And when I say that in my conferences, I can hear gasps, audible gasps from women who go, <gasps> sometimes I've gotten little notes on the evaluation form that say, I don't care what ASHA says, I'm, I don't believe that speech-language pathologists are trained and capable of diagnosing autism, and I always want to say, okay, it's very obvious you're not, but yeah. you can't really say <laughs> that someone else is not if they have taken the time to really pursue additional training and you know, like lots of us do, we, we train ourselves by reading every bit of information we can get our hands on. And, boy, the Internet has made that so much easier than it used to be 10 or 15 years ago. And by going to conferences and then just by networking with other professionals and by spending hundreds of hours year after year after year on the floor and in offices with children and their families and really looking at you know, what a kid does versus what the list would say. And, again, those formal assessment tools, the, um, there are lots of different tests that professionals could use. The one that we're talking about today or that's listed in the article that we're going to be discussing is the ADOS. It's what people call it, but it's Autism Diagnostic Observation Scale. The uh, What are some other autism scales, Kate? I'm going to reach over and try to get another file I have that might list that. What can you think of? The... The uh, oh shoot! What's There's that another other one, one they mentioned. There's some checklist thing. Well, you could do the MCHAT, which is a checklist, which really kind of refers you on that that moms often complete in the doctor's office. That you know lead the pediatrician to say, "Yeah, I want you to go see somebody about this," or "No, you don't have enough check marks about it." Boy, my my cord of my phone just isn't quite long enough for me to reach <laughs> the cars. The ADOS the is cars. one that the um, psychologists here locally seem that seems to be their go-to assessment tool, and um, so I'm probably most familiar with that one. Although I certainly wouldn't say I'm an expert. Um, yeah. And I do know at least I've, and I probably shouldn't say it since I don't know it for a fact, but I have heard secondhand, albeit, and it may be totally wrong. You know, locally we have uh, one big agency that is kind of the go-to place for having a child evaluated for autism, um, and they use the arena assessment approach. By right. that, I mean, generally a child is going to see a developmental pediatrician, a psychologist, an occupational therapist, and a speech therapist. And one person, one of those people may take the lead for a while, and the others kind of observe um, anyway, so it's this uh, team assessment, which is really by most experts considered the best way to have a child evaluated with autism. And I yeah, and I agree our, with that. Yeah, I think so too. But I've heard that our place locally doesn't really use a diagnostic tool. They don't use ADOS. They don't use, they, I guess, go on observation and base it on the DSM-4. I don't know if that's a fact, but I've been told that. 
Well, so. the children that I have accompanied to that kind of assessment, and I can't say that there have been lots of children, just the few parents who really guilt me into going with them. Right. <laughs> and that would be not anybody myself. recently. Yeah. But usually it is the the uh, developmental pediatrician at, in Louisville at the agency or the the clinic that you're referring to really does kind of say yay or nay, and then the rest of the therapists chime in with their own individual assessments, and they pretty much, I think, would would support the opinion of the developmental pediatrician who's present. Has that right. been your experience when you were, yeah? Um, you know, when I've read the reports, it seems more like it's the psychologist who's actually making the diagnosis in a, in the written report. When I've been there, I guess it was more the developmental pediatrician who really spoke to the mom and did, in fact, right. confirm a diagnosis with this child. Right. But, and that's been my experience, too. And I guess when I've read the reports, I guess I don't know that I've particularly paid attention to um what other testing, specific testing the psychologist might have done. But when, when we refer a kid to a specific psychologist, which is what we do in our regular practice, with the, we have, we're so lucky here in our early intervention system because we have some psychologists who participate in our state-funded system. And so they see children at home and they see them multiple times and really spend lots of time with the parents and it's not just a one-shot kind of thing, although a lot of times, often on that first visit, they do confirm, yeah, autism is what we're looking at here, uh, or not. They might say, we need more specific data, or I'm not sure that's it, but here's what I do see that's going on. But we're so lucky in that respect that we can often see that diagnostic process um, take shape over several weeks when we have one single psychologist who's participated on the team and, and done it, not collaboratively in the sense that we're all there at the same time, but certainly there are phone calls that are made, information is shared, and so I do feel like that we get to participate or contribute in some way in that assessment process, don't you? Yes, I do. And I think they also do a nice job if the child's in preschool or daycare or some kind of play group, they more often than not, I think pretty much always go see them in that environment. I really right. feel like it's a better look at what a child is really like in his or her natural environment than going to a place for an hour and a half and sitting right. at a table in a sterile room and seeing what the child will do in that hour and a half. Right. So I know that I think a lot of local folks have leaned towards that thinking that they the psychologists get a better look and a much more um, realistic right. uh, look at the ch- children that way than going to the agency. Right. But because okay. there are kids that, I mean, and usually a lot of people think, okay, you don't want a child going to one place and have that one-shot assessment because they're going to look terrible and just do, you know, totally bomb everything and not exhibit their normal, typical skill range. But I've really seen the opposite happen, where they go and they look better to me on that darn day than they have the whole six months that I've seen them previously. <laughs> and boy, does that tick me off. Because <laughs> then I want to say, 
he's never done that before. <laughs> you know, and again, it's not that I'm not happy that he's having the best day of his life. But I do think, hey, what happened here, and it does give us good information in that, okay, I can present this information in a different way, and, yeah, we're going to, we're going to stretch and make sure that we get that skill carried over to a daily environment or that we know, okay, he's going to do much better in kind of this structured learning task, and we've got to figure out how to generalize that to more everyday real-life skill. But it does happen the other way, too, where a kid might look better than he's ever looked before. And, again, that is especially disconcerting to therapists who've looked at a kid and who've worked with a kid week after week after week, and we think, he has never done that before, and, you know, he may never do that again for another year. <laughs> but he did it, and he, or a parent might report, yeah, he can do a skill, but if a therapist were there, we might say, uh, no, we can't, or not on my watch, or, you know, or she's, or this... The person that's asking the question didn't mean he did it one time six months ago when he only sort of kind of did it that day. You know, they would mean kind of some consistency but the way that parents are answering questions. And, again, how you've already pointed out that so much of this whole process really is subjective so that a kid really might look one way to one examiner and somebody else might have a different read on the same kid even on the same day. Much less this on is, different I think, days. is what what generates some of my discomfort with, you know, dealing with parents and they're asking me, "What do you think? What do you think? What do you think?" And sometimes my best answer is, mm, "It would depend who did the evaluation for those right. more borderline kids." Because right. I mean, if it's very obvious, they'd probably get a diagnosis at any place or from any person. But when they're higher functioning or Right. You know, some things are a little stronger than others. My best answer is it would depend, and I hate that right. because I think it's such a huge deal, but I think that's really the truth sometimes. I think it is, too, and I think that you do such a good job of explaining those differences. I mean, I've heard you have those conversations here on the show and with parents in real life about it's so subjective and, and one person – and this is what happens a lot with us in early intervention, too. One of our guys that we see all the time might go see one person for one of those one-shot assessments, and that person may say, no, autism. He's still language delay, but he doesn't have autism. And then, and we've talked about this on the show, too, and then we're still kind of going, oh, okay, I wouldn't be so sure about that. And then we see the mom two years later in Target, or when the kid starts kindergarten or first grade, and the Christmas card says, oh, and guess what? He did get an official diagnosis of autism. And that's when it's worse, when a mom really thinks, we're out of the woods, we don't have anything to worry about, this is just a little language delay, he's just a little late talker. And because a person has said, no, it's not autism, and then they do still exhibit so many of those same characteristics. And in some cases... Some of those things even get a little worse by the time they're in school, especially if they didn't have consistent therapy and intervention in that interlude between the time first steps or early intervention stops at three. There's not much done until they, you know, grace the door of kindergarten at five, and then nobody's really followed up on that, and then they end up, you know, the mom saying, well, guess what, it really was autism. And that's when I think it's really, really sad when you when you get that rule out when it really should. Even some of those 
even some of those assessments we get frustrated when they come back with come back in another year, but that's more fair <laughs> and more uh, informative to those families who are told that, too, no, it's not autism, and then told again at five or six, oh, wait a minute, yes, it was, mm-hmm. which has happened more times than with a lot of kids that I've seen um, in my career. And you and right. certainly had that happen, too, haven't you? Oh, yes. I've had them even all within the first steps time frame, which, as you know, is zero to three, where psychologists will diagnose a child, the mom wasn't happy with that, took them to our big agency, they negated the diagnosis. Um, I don't know how that one has played out, but, you know, he was one to me that wasn't really, um, I didn't doubt that that was an appropriate diagnosis for him. And I feel mm-hmm. certain that he will ultimately get the diagnosis from school because he right. you know, he was pretty classic, really. And right. they uh, anyway. So even within six months, I've had a mom be told, "Yes, he is," and "No, he isn't," uh, unequivocally, yeah. without a doubt, both ways. So, and I think some parents get really again get relieved with that, and they. And I understand that. And, again, not ever being a parent with a child with autism, I certainly, you know, our oldest son has had his share of learning issues, but autism is not one of those. And certainly I can understand a parent's relief and a parent's um, agony in thinking that he was and then just huge relief when in hearing, no, it's not. But I know how my mind works, and I would be saying, but what if that first person really was right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it can go either way. All right, we've spent nearly 30 minutes talking about our personal opinion. Let's consult a reference on this. Okay. <laughs> this article that we're going to be referring to was from an ASHA journal called Perspectives on Language Learning and Education. It was an October 2008 edition of that, and it's by Rhea... Paul, and I've read lots of things that she's written. She's from Southern Connecticut State University, and she's also at the Yale Child Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. She had a couple of other people write uh, the article with her. Volkmar, Fred Volkmar's on here. And then, do you have? Do you think you could pronounce the other person's name, Kate? Oh, I don't have it. Do you have the article in front of you? It's no. okay. It looks like it's like a Czechoslovakian name and. I'm not even going to try that. So, and no offense to that person, sorry. That's just beyond my ability. Uh, but so this is from Dr. Rhea Paul, and she looked at, and again, if you want the, if you're a speech pathologist who, or, an, or another early interventionist, developmental interventionist, or therapist, and you really, really want, or you're kind of a reference person, email me, and I'll be glad to shoot you the reference on this. But this is from their. Um, Again, that journal that I cited, and the article is called Differentiating ASD, which is Autism Spectrum Disorder, from DLD, which is Developmental Language Disorders in Toddlers. And they did a study where they looked at a a group of toddlers between, I think it was 16 months old and 34 months old when they first started to look at them, and they followed all of those children until they were four, and they wanted to compare the children who were officially diagnosed with autism Uh, versus the children who they felt were just had a language delay versus children that were typically developing. And so, again, they followed these children until four. They didn't follow the typically developing group because they just declared them typical and moved on. 
and didn't really look at their data again, but they looked closely at these kids who they felt were on the spectrum, and they had it confirmed by a speech pathologist plus a psychologist, and they had to have some agreement as to what the original diagnosis was to begin with before they uh, selected them from the study or for the study, and you can take a look at all that background criteria. I'm just explaining this to say, yes, this was a real-life scientific study that met all that, of that eligibility requirement stuff that all of us reviewed ad nauseum in graduate school. So, yes, it's a real bona fide study. <laughs> and so this is what they found. These were their clinical observations overall, and these were the things that they felt would really help therapists separate children and again, this this was their big thing, is they wanted to give speech pathologists a way to tease out the kids with autism or the kids who they felt probably had autism, especially for speech pathologists who did not have access to multidisciplinary teams so that they could refer them from the very beginning, so maybe in more rural areas, and again, this is just my conjecture, or maybe they're just not the resources for a particular family, and they they stated in the study other studies that say that usually the number one reason children are referred for early intervention services is um, delayed language, either lack of first words or either that development just doesn't proceed. Maybe perhaps they have some single words but don't ever develop combinations. And so they wanted to give therapists a way to decide if this child should be referred on for more specific testing or if you could be pretty confident that this was just a language delay and to keep plugging along with speech therapy and your other resources. So I think that that's the big clinical implication here. Right. So the things, yeah, did you take that same information away from the study? I did, yeah. When you read it? Okay. Well, that's good. We agree on that. <laughs> All right. So the big things that they felt were really the defining differences were that as a group, the children who had autism had receptive language skills that were lower than their expressive language skill scores, and that that pattern, and when you looked at that pattern, their comprehension was significantly different from even the kids with developmental language delay or certainly the kids with typical language development. So that was that was a big one. And I get emails about that all the time where therapists will say to me, hey, I'm looking for this on your website and I don't really see it, but I've got this kid whose expressive language is pretty good, but he bombed the receptive portion of the preschool language scale or whatever test they're giving them. I've not really seen that pattern before. What could that be? And in mm -hmm. my mind, that always, always means that they are more likely to be on the spectrum. Don't you think about it that way, too? Absolutely, because it's so atypical for for typically developing kids. Normally, their receptive skills are much better than their expressive skills, and whenever you see that upside-down result where they're saying more than they understand. Mm, yeah, the first thing I think. Me too. I always do our little ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. You know, yeah. I always think about that. Oh, I know what this could be, even without mm -hmm. seeing that kid. And that's not to say that we don't see some children that you scratch your head and you think, okay, why is his expressive, why is his expressive score so much better than his receptive score? And I will say that some children, I have seen a couple in my career who would have that pattern, who were not on the spectrum, but 
only because um, socially they had learned to do a little better, and these are usually kids whose parents were so hyper-social or so that social skills were so... Uh, were there even their parents' strengths that I think, well, no wonder you look better in that regard because from the time that you were born, your mom has been in your face ooing and gooing and smiling, and you couldn't help but have better social skills than if you had had perhaps a less social set of parents. Have you ever had that happen with a kid? Because I can think I've of three. I wish I could say their name. With, yeah. I've heard you talk about it, and I don't know that I really would say I have. Not really. Well, and all three of these kids, one of those kids did go on to get a diagnosis of autism from a person who's written a lot of books about autism, so no doubt in my mind that he did. That's an appropriate diagnosis. I was saying that on his team. This is a particular kid that um, the a primary level evaluator who I really, really respect as a speech pathologist but just told the mom, no way is he autistic on the first day. You know, and so that really sets the next person to come in, you know, a week later and say, gosh, yeah, you know, she says, well, she says, no way, he's autistic. What do you think? You know, that's a real comfortable position to be in. You're going, uh-huh. oh, I think we ought to revisit this here. But anyway, he did go on to a nationally recognized expert who said, yes, he's on the spectrum. And then two of those kids, again, are just entering kindergarten, so it will be really interesting to me to see what happens. But I think those are going to be auditory processing kids. And, again, knowing their parents like I know them, they're all highly successful and great moms and dads, but I do think there's a little hint of auditory processing issues just with them, just like remembering appointments when I didn't write it down and, you know, all those kinds of things, I think that would be the only exception, those kids who are going to go on and still struggle a lot with, I mean, I predict that both of those kids are going to have some academic issues and problems. And these were highly educated families, that they did continue therapy even after uh, first steps and even after neither, neither of those kids qualified for therapy services through Jefferson County through public schools, but both the parents were perceptive enough to know, gosh, he's, he, a little boy and a little girl, you know, two separate families, they still need therapy, so we're going to pay for it privately. Right. And they didn't see me. They saw somebody else. But it will be very, very interesting to see how those how it teases out because those are the only two other kids in my career that would score expressively better than they did receptively. And so it doesn't happen very often when it's not autism. So as... As a a professional, when you see that pattern, you know, you've got some backup here that says (laughs) that pattern is more closely linked to autism than any other diagnosis that you might see, although you may see a rare exception to that. But that's funny that you haven't really seen that. No, I don't don't really think I have, but that could be a reflection three times in those unique situations where the parents are so good about drilling the social stuff that, you know, it comes through as a strength for the child that might not have been there if they'd had a different parent. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just really, really interesting. One of those sets of parents, you know, they're, uh, well, I'm not even going to talk about it, the particular mix, because I don't want anybody to think that I'm violating confidentiality, but in all three of those, again, parents in you know, either own their own companies or physicians or 
um, you know, another kind of medical professional where you would think, yeah, they're highly, highly educated and they understand the value of that in-your-face social activity, ooh and goo. And all of those, let's say two of those moms of those three children, too, were, I mean, among my my most perfect parent models for language and attachment or, you know, I mean, again, these moms did everything perfectly. I mean, I could not critique one thing that they should have done or have been doing differently before I got there. They already knew what to do. It just wasn't happening. So, again, it'll be interesting to see how that checks out. But but back to when you see that receptive skill lower than the expressive skill, you need to, you know, that's a kid that you think, gosh, he's, I better be really looking at, at, referring him on or whether he's truly at risk for autism because that's usually an indicator. And, again, you can't always go by parent report with the core deficits for autism, can you, Kate, as far as most parents, I hardly, hardly have had a parent say he's not really social with me or he's not attached or engaged with me. Almost every parent of a kid with autism believes that he is and so that's really hard for parents to differentiate it's when the third party objective person comes in and looks at those um, characteristics of social interaction you know looking at the eye contact looking at the joint attention looking at the reciprocity most parents believe it's there even when it's not so you can't go on that parent report and again that's not to hurt any parent's feelings, it's not to be condescending, it's it's not any of that. I'm just saying from a mom's perspective, you can't really judge that about your own kid. And and again I say that from years and years of clinical practical reality <laughs> because a well, parent I've hardly know, ever had a parent say that. Right. And we've discussed on this show and in on our countless hours of related phone conversation that some kids, in fact, I'd go further and say many kids on the spectrum in a way are very connected, particularly to their moms, because generally that's who, and sometimes their dads, but it's it's a very immature, not, not really age-appropriate right. connectedness, but it's very real. You know, oftentimes right. they run to their mommies when they're threatened, and they're often very threatened, so they... You know, they may be very clingy, um, seeking lots of comfort on a regular basis, and parents say, well, look. And it's true that sometimes that, or a lot of times that's the way they are, but when a psychologist really looks at all those things like joint attention and, you know, all the other things that play into social skills, and those things aren't really there. But I totally understand why a mom would say, well, what do you mean he's not connected to me? You know, because he's running to me and wants me to hold him all the time, and a lot of times those kids do. And I always kind of say, and I think this is true, that, you know, they I don't know when it's supposed to happen, but the whole DSM-4 thing is supposed to be revamped and rewritten and redone. I I think that's a pretty old... uh, Definition. Definition, and Mm -hmm. that um, kids... You know, for sure there are way more kids on the spectrum, and I think it's also true that way more kids get a diagnosis than would have gotten it 50 years ago. But I think that some of that came from kids who were 
who were kind of institutionalized or who were just uniformly not, you know, they didn't have those social parents who forced it and who did the right stuff. And so those things may not be as obvious as they would have been 50 years ago. Right. Um, But, you know... There's still big and our definition, I mean, our whole definition of autism really changed even from the time that I began my career because we weren't really calling kids autistic. But now in hindsight, I might look back and think, oh, yeah, and that's when, where the whole spectrum disorder came from, that there's a big, wide range of abilities and strengths and weaknesses, whereas lots of these moms who are, you know, late 20s, 30s, and early 40s are thinking about autism from when they, the definition when they were kids Mm -hmm. and how they knew that to be just in their own communities with, um, you know, a kid in school who might have gotten that diagnosis, diagnosis versus the wider range that we see today. So again, and again, I'm going back to that whole when when you're the mom of the kid that you're talking about, your judgment is just totally <laughs> colored by how much you love and adore your own kid. And that's not, you know, right or wrong. It just is. And there are sometimes that there are things that you may look at differently than someone else coming in and looking at it. And, again, I speak to that from parenting a kid with a learning difference. You know, and I say this in the conferences, and I'm sure I've said it on the show, I could give parents pretty devastating news and say pretty much the same kind of things about a kid as a toddler that I would go to my school-age child's IEP because I was the person as mom there, not as a professional, but functioning as the child's mother. I mean, I would bawl my eyes out and cry like a baby even though I might have said that same sort of thing an hour before, it is just different when it's your own kid. It's so emotional. It's so, you know, it's so real and raw that sometimes you just can't see those things in the same kind of way. So, again, I'm just saying that just to, if any mom is listening and saying, oh, how can she say he's not connected, just to put that in perspective there. And you did a good job of talking about the whole qualitative difference that we see with the whole social piece. But all right, let's move on beyond that. That's, they didn't even really talk about that in the article again. That was kind of our little uh, <laughs> bunny trail or our, our diversion. Once again, we digress on that. But, okay, back to what the Here's something said, that I that is in the article, Laura, that I thought this was interesting because I've never seen this in writing, but it's something I've... Uh, kind of observed and concluded on my own, but I've never seen it supported by research, but here it is. Um, Let's see. I guess they're quoting another study, Weatherby A.L., identified behaviors that differentiate two-year-olds with ASD from those with either um, typical development or nonspecific developmental delay. These included lack of appropriate gaze, lack of sharing of enjoyment and motion with gaze, and those are the two that they say are true of kids with, um, whether they're on the spectrum or developmental language delay, right. those two, those first two. And I have noticed that, you know, in my reference, frame of reference for developmental language delay is really in this, you could correct me when I'm wrong, I tend to think of the kids I, I suspect or know are apraxic. You know, they... Mm-hmm. Um, really language delayed and the, the other classic things that go with apraxia. But 
a lot of times those kids don't make great eye contact, haven't you? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and and I've kind of thought, I don't think they're on the spectrum because they have other skills and strengths and things that do not, you know, fit that diagnosis. And yet I've always kind of thought, what is it about these kids that they don't, you know, I'm struggling to get their eye contact and maintain it and to get some kind of, right. you know, they tend to hunker down on a toy and then you kind of lose them um, with the, you know, the eye gaze. And so this does exactly say, well, that's something that goes with the uh, language developmental, developmental language delay. And I don't really understand. I always have, I've even wondered out loud with parents on their floor, I don't know if that precedes the language delay or their language delayed and so therefore eye contact or, you know, uh, that gaze is not something that's particularly important to them and it doesn't really get reinforced because they're not locked into language the way we'd like them to be or whatever. But anyway, I was kind of happy to see, okay, it's not my imagination that these language kids (laughs) have always thought, why can't I get them to look at me like a typical kid or even other kids who have language problems but I don't suspect are apraxic. You know what I mean? It seems like, yeah, yeah, those kids... It's interesting, but there it is in black and, and white. They, yeah, and they didn't differentiate. They just said developmental language delay. They didn't tease that diagnosis out into the kids who have motor speech problems or the kids who might have any other kind of language issue. They just called them all these two-year-olds as developmental language delay, meaning that they did not qualify to get a spectrum diagnosis but they still were significantly different than children with typically developing language as far as their language goes. uh, And and that was interesting to me, too, because a lot of those kids that we know aren't on the spectrum, but you still say, why can't I get his attention? Every speech therapist that's practiced for more than two weeks knows that you just want to have a little a little kind of uh, Charlie Brown mantra person in the background saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, because nearly all kids with language issues, speech language issues, don't really look at you like they should. Not the way that typical kids do. And, you know, when I'm around a typical child, which, of course, I'm not through work, but whether it be in the grocery store line or whatever, yeah. buying a pair of shoes, or and there's a cute kid in the stroller, and I'm, they just look at you constantly. You know, they're like staring <laughs> right at you. And I always think, whoa, look at that. You know? <laughs> look at that. I know Johnny yeah. and I talk about it all the time, especially in restaurants. And, you know, I share on here all the time how I, I play the little game of I, I – you know, assess the kid and decide how old I think the kid is, and then I go ask the parents. And, you know, my kids on vacation and on trips, and Johnny will say, do not ask that dad how old his kid is. Don't do it. <laughs> but I just can hardly stop myself from doing They'll that. Like, now. That's go me. He'll say, how old do you think he is? He knows <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> well, I do. I right. sit there. And, you know, when I miss, it's I'm I'm thinking they're younger and I'm going on their developmental skills and Johnny now will kind of joke and say she's really bigger than that I bet she's just delayed, okay. you know and I'm looking at okay what skills does she have and again it's so funny the kids who are who are truly typically developing and this would be whether they're eight months old or eighteen months old or three or four those typically developing kids who are doing pretty well with language do just look at you and have such 
enormous amounts of eye contact, and it just, you can hardly get away from their little gazes, that that should be a big marker that, hey, you are doing okay neurologically and developmentally here, because boy, can you fixate on another person who is obviously interested in you. And it is it is a big, big difference from our kids that we see that we can hardly get to engage with us in that way. Right. So it was good it's, to see It's that. almost a little disconcerting because it's so yeah. not what we're used to. We're usually saying, look, look, look at me, watch me. I say it. Look, look. Constant trying to get yeah. their attention. And those yeah. kids are just peering right up at you with those big eyes looking like I'm taking every bit of it in. Yeah. Right. And you can see those little wheels turning even if they're not saying anything. You can mm-hmm. see them mapping you and you know, <laughs> noticing every little thing. And I just think, oh, my goodness, it's, that's amazing. The other things that the study said that we see in children who um, have, and, again, you're trying to differentiate the children who are autistic versus the kids that just have developmental language delay, the three things that they spelt, that the researchers felt like that kids did better when they just had the language delay versus the kids with autism were that the kids responded to language much better, the developmental language delay kids, rather than the kids who were on the spectrum. Kids who are on the spectrum, they noted the things that we see every day. Failure to respond to name. Failure to coordinate the gaze, gesture, and facial expressions with vocalizations. And again, we've talked about the lack of joint attention, or maybe the unusual vocalizations, and the repetitive movements with the body and object. Overall, you know, those are the kinds of things that we see in children that are on the spectrum. And certainly, that was where the the others they quoted the other study, and that was by Weatherby, and it was a 2004 study that found those things. And you referred to the first two findings of Weatherby, Kate, that the lack of appropriate gaze and lack of sharing enjoyment, emotion and gaze, that those things were associated with children on the spectrum. And then uh, Dr. Paul, who did this study, felt that their study showed that even the kids who had developmental language delay may not always have that appropriate gaze and sharing enjoyment with their gaze, that it's that whole eye contact piece that's kind of iffy. And they also said, Dr. Paul's group, is that some of the children that they identified as developmental language delays had some criteria that when they were using a tool like the ADOS, they might have some of those things that are typically associated with autism, but they did not have enough of those to officially meet the diagnostic criteria for autism. And, you know, we talk about those kids as borderline kids all the time, don't we? Right. Just in our casual conversations, like, well, he's got some spectrum-y things, but <laughs> not full, and you say this all the time, not full-blown autism. Right. Meaning he did, would not meet all of that criteria, but he does have some things that would make you think he's on the spectrum. And those are the kids that I really emotionally struggle about just because I think, oh, I hope they go to somebody good who does the right thing and tells them the right thing, and and I hate that it's a gray area, and I totally feel for parents who want to know definitively, is he or isn't he? And it's like, well, you know, Right. I'm not the one to ask, and, you know, I try and do my best to get them to somebody that I respect and thinks I think they know what they're talking about, but it's hard. Right. I mean, those kids are yeah. not always clear-cut. And right, those, those right. Are the ones and that, I, 
Go ahead. And I guess this is what the article is saying. If the criteria that they're putting forth, when you have receptive language that's lower than an expressive score, when, and when you have those other really atypical things like repetitive movements with their, bo their own bodies, and again, for those of you who are not quite sure what I'm talking about, I'm talking about flapping, spinning, uh, excessive uh, licking or smelling, any kind of repetitive thing that they do over and over again. And that not makes just their bodies, but with objects. Those kids objects do. Too. You give them the yeah. hammer for the ball toy, and what they really want to do with it is hold it in front of their eyes and wiggle it. You know. Right. Mm. Or they watch their hands a lot. You know, and or a mom might say, "We really is interested in his hands. He's always holding things in front of his eyes." Mm. <sighs> you know. Those kinds of atypical things, I mean, those those are mo more closely associated with autism than with any other thing. And so when kids have those kinds of things, it's really, really important that you do go on and refer them, like Kate was just talking about with making sure that you get them to someone who can help confirm that diagnosis because they're going to get more help, more intervention, and the more, you know, all kinds of studies show that the earlier you start intervention, the more specifically it's directed to a child's particular weaknesses, the better his chances are of obtaining a higher developmental level. He may never be too, truly considered within normal limits on his language or his social skills or his academics, but he's going to be so much farther down the pipe than if parents had done nothing at all. So it's really important when you see those kinds of things to think, oh, boy, this is a kid that I've got to refer on. This is a kid that I can't sit on and wait six months, nine months, a year before I'm getting him to see somebody else. So those were the things that they agreed and that Dr. Paul agreed from an earlier study by Weatherby that, yeah, this is when we're going to think, okay, this is more than a language delay. We're going to refer them on. And the other things that they felt like that were positive, more positive prognostic indicators, meaning that it was probably just a developmental language delay versus autism were when the kids responded to language better, when they used more gestures. Which and is again, a huge with, one I use, yeah. Yeah, and gestures, that's with an S not just one gesture, and everybody that's listened to the show for more than a time or two are going to know what Kate and I are going to talk about. A lot of kids that are on the spectrum might have one gesture, which is leading, or using an adult's hands to do something that they can't do, but when you're watching them, there's no reciprocity there. They are not looking at their mom's faces or their dad's faces when they're pulling them. They're just pulling to get to where they want to go. There's no real back and forth looking. Um, usually at the beginning before intervention starts, before they kind of start to move on up that ladder with gesture use. So look at all kinds of gestures. You want to see them clapping when other people clap. You want to see waving bye-bye. You want to see pointing. You want to see, help, help me, Kate, with some other gestures, reaching. Uh, giving five, um, what I, what I affectionately yeah. refer to as the gimme fingers. They're reaching out yeah. and they're scrunching their little hands as if to say, give it to me. Yeah, and a lot of those kids who are really language delayed, sometimes those things, they're really good at all those. You know, they have a natural gesture for where. They put their hands out and go, what, where, right. you know. <laughs> they and they kind of invented their seven Yeah, and they sometimes they invent do. their own little signs. They'll start mm -hmm. doing something, and their mom will know exactly what they mean. Yeah. Oh, he wants and to take a bath. What in the yeah. world is that? Yeah. <laughs> and she'll say, that means blah, blah, you know, whatever. 
because they develop that. They know, okay, I cannot talk, but, boy, I can show my mommy exactly what I want, and she knows what I mean. So they use their own gestures. So when you see a kid that's doing, having lots of gestures, who's responding to language, when you're trying to talk to them, they may not be talking back, but they are somehow responding to you. Those kids whose comprehension, and, again, it may not be completely normal comprehension, but there is pretty good understanding of especially things in daily routines in your normal events, those kids more than likely have just a language delay and are not on the spectrum versus, you know, where you're you're kind of wondering. And, again, you can think back clinically to all the kids that you've seen on your caseloads and assign them sort of within these categories, like, yeah, you're right, he didn't exactly look at me all the time, and somebody might have said, his joint attention isn't great, but if I really looked at his gestures, he had seven or eight different gestures that he used all the time, and he really understood a lot of what his mom said. She might say to him, hey, listen, we're we're going to go outside and play, so you better go get your shoes on. And without even looking up at her, he ran and got his shoes because, boy, he knew the word outside and shoes. <laughs> and so you can differentiate that way. The other one that we have talked about a lot over the summer is use of objects and pretend play. Your players and kids who are truly... Um, it can sequence steps in play and, and internally know how to play with a lot of different toys, even if it's the first time they've seen the toy, are usually um, kids who, you might, who might fall into that developmental language like category versus a kid who's truly on the spectrum and needs that diagnosis at two. And we say that a lot. We'll say, but he's a good player. So right. we're thinking it's more language delay, you know, and that's, again, an informal criteria that I think lots of us use in our clinical practices that would differentiate a kid who needed to be referred on versus the kid that you're just going to keep trucking along with your language therapy. In general, though, Laura, I'll just kind of say this on a closing note, is that even in the however many years, 13 years, I guess I've been doing this. I've seen a big trend of, you know, it seems like 13, 10, however many years in the past, 10 years and more, I used to cross paths with therapists who were far more resistant to sending a child on for further assessment to even discussing the topic of autism with a parent. And I I generally try and respect a parent's lead on whether they want to go there unless I just think it's it's really something that needs to be discussed. I try and kind right. of wait for a window of opportunity when a mom says, what do you think? What, you know, why hasn't mm-hmm. he, whatever. Right. But um, it used to be I I would hear of or deal with therapists who were really, really, really uncomfortable with the topic, really would negate anything that somebody else might say to them, saying, he's too young, he's too, how how could they possibly? And, you know, certainly the trend in this country has been to diagnose them earlier, and even here locally it's gotten to be much more commonplace and people in general are much more comfortable with it and willing to say, yeah, it's a possibility. We probably should look to the experts for some more um, testing. So. It's moving forward. It is moving forward, and and we've talked about this too. In some places, it's probably overdiagnosed, not in our area, we don't think. Uh, And sometimes it kind of the pendulum swings that way. And this is, I mean, when I got this 
this article came from a listserv of speech pathologists that I participate in because they were saying in this particular area of the country that so many children who just had developmental language issues were being diagnosed as autistic, but yet they would go to the speech pathologist who would go, oh, my goodness, who gave you this diagnosis? Yeah, he's got a language delay, but he is not on the spectrum. And so mm-hmm. there, you know, there was some big discussion about that. Well, how do you know? And then somebody else popped in and said, well, listen, I've got this great reference that we should be using. It's from the American Speech and Hearing Association, one of their journals. And I thought it was good because it doesn't really talk about that we as early intervention therapists are going to take those tools that are really probably more appropriate for the psychologist to use, like um, the ADOS or I was before I was talking about the CARS, that's the Childhood Autism Rating Scale, take the CARS and score that or take another tool. We aren't really, we don't really use those things in clinical practice. They broke it down in things that we all can look at, you know, receptive language versus expressive language. Look at a child's use of gestures. Look at how he plays. Does he know, is he a good player? Does he use objects appropriately in play? If he's not, if he's spinning all those toys and really doing, you know, holding it up in front of his eyes, especially to see how it looks when he holds it to the ceiling fan. You know, those are things that you can do without a formal test. And so I thought this article, and I agreed with the person that that recommended it, it is a really practical way to decide for those kids with those iffy kids and where you want to say which ones should I truly refer on out or which ones are we just going to trudge along with our speech therapy and see what happens. I did think it was a good a good way to really tease some of those things out. Now, is it 100% effect, you know, I don't want to say effective, but will it be 100%? Will you, you know, after listening to this show and reading this article, will you no longer have any more questions about which kids are on the spectrum and which kids are not? No, <laughs> but it does give you more of um, more clinical uh, milestones or characteristics or I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. It does give you something more to go on than that internal gauge. I mean, you can sit and think, how does this play look? What did his receptive skills look versus his expressive skills? Does he have some gestures? Is he responding to language? And really narrow it down a little more closely, you know. And when you see those stereotypical behaviors, those repetitive movements with his own body or with objects, you know, when you see that there's really very little evidence that he's responding to people at all, those are the instances where you think, okay, this is more severe. I've got to refer it on. I can't be wishy-washy about this. So I liked it for that sense. But I don't think anything is ever going to truly clear up all those clinical questions we have because we're all people and all the kids we see are people too and there's a big range with what kids will do and won't do just from kid to kid and then just even with one kid with how the progress that he makes and the things that he does from session to session to session so I don't think we'll ever completely 100% take some of that subjectivity out of it I don't either and you know really I think honestly at the end of the day um, there are some kids who have some spectrumy tendencies, and yet perhaps not all of them, or they're not as classically right. affected as maybe right. another child with autism. And so it's probably going to, con- until they come up with some sort of a test where they can actually 
do some medical test and maybe then they'll know, but at this point it's, there's going to be some gray in there. But it is a good article to help those of us in the trenches to start looking a little bit more specifically about what things are indicative, what things should I really be focused on here, right. and trying to get a little objectivity. So, Well, and for those of us who worked for a while, I love to read articles that confirm what you already know and what you already do. And this, this was that kind of article. I know it was right. for me, and I'm sure it was for you too, Kate. Right. Well, and I did like reading that, you know, those developmental language delay kids, the eye gaze is, oftentimes um, an issue for them because I've known that but I've never really read that and I've always thought is it just me who seems to notice this or nope apparently the author of this study would agree with that and I don't I would like to know the theory about why that is but all I know is it is I know I know well hopefully we're leaving our listeners with more answers than questions but even this kind of discussion goes a long way with that. So hopefully, um, hopefully, it'll be a good reference. All right, let's wrap it up for tonight. Okay. Well, if, you, if anybody needs that specific, pro- what? Uh-oh. I was going to say, if anybody needs that reference, email me and I'll send it to you. And what were you going to say? Oh, just that I like the topic because I struggle with it on a regular basis. So. Yeah, this is real life clinical practice here. Right. It's not just you either. <laughs> oh, okay, good right. to know. <laughs> okay, talk to you later. Bye. Okay, bye. <laughs>